If you remember two weeks ago, I shared that Cindy, my wife, and I had a major disagreement and fight on January 1. The first day of the new year, the first day of the new decade, shared it in a sermon illustration. I thought we were the only ones who fought on January 1. But literally after each of our four weekend services, I received through verbal affirmation and countless messages on social media and texts, thanking me for sharing because they too fought with their spouse on January 1. And they thought that they were terrible couples thinking no one else would do the same. If the pastor and his wife can fight on the 1st of January, then they are normal just like the rest of us. And as I began to think why that illustration resonated with so many, I realized it's because families are dysfunctional. Life is messy, and it is so because of the fallen, sinful world in which we live. Unless filled by the Holy Spirit every day, living out a Christ-like life, we will often fall back naturally, revert back to our old ways and tendencies, and thus allowing life to become very messy and families to become dysfunctional. My friends, this morning... I make a proclamation. There is no such thing as a perfect family. Our family is not perfect. Every family has problems and issues. Every family has their version of a scandal. In most every family, children are rebellious. In every family, a relative has been divorced or separated. In every family, sometimes a child is born out of wedlock. In others, a child born prior to marriage. In every family, there is a family member who owes money or has financial issues. In every family, there are those whose parents constantly fight. There are some in every family whose siblings fight because of rivalry. In every family, there are families who, whose loved one either figuratively or sadly, literally, stab one another in the back. Our family is no exception. It happens in our nuclear family. It happens in our extended family. It happens in the wider family we call the church. Now, how do we identify the root causes of some of these family dysfunction and situations that cause life to be messy? How do we find redemption in the messiness of life and family dysfunctions? That is what we want to take a look at in this new sermon series, Home, as we tackle these issues and look specifically at the life of Jacob in the book of Genesis. If you ever want to see a family that is dysfunctional, take a look at the life of the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. If you think your family is bad, look at theirs. Turn them in your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis chapter 25 as we begin our new sermon series. And we begin this series by looking at some of the underlying sin issues that cause messiness in life and dysfunction in the family. And specifically this morning, we, we talk about power. The play for power in family units. And you can extend the application uh, to the workplace, in the school, in the church. Power plays manifest itself and evidences itself in many dysfunctions such as rivalry, deception, revenge, passive aggressiveness, comparison, etc., and that's why we have to address this root issue of power place. 
You may not identify with this, but let me give you examples. There are many cases in our cultural context where parents won't relinquish control of certain things, thinking that their children are not ready, or they can't accept their children being better than them in certain areas. You know, in our cultural context of the 90-year-old businessman, the father, who will not turn over the company to the 65-year-old son, still not trusting the son. There are stories of sibling who want to one-up each other as they fight for the attention and the love of parents or even grandparents all the way into their adult life. Stories of sister-in-laws who fight with each other as if competition is an Olympic sport to try to get their mother-in-laws to love them more or for their in-laws to love their grandchildren through their line. Oh, there are crazy stories out there of brothers who are so close and yet they now no longer talk to each other because their wives don't get along. We see it being played out in British royalty today. Or in a few cases, I've I've asked people who live quite close to our community to Grace, and I asked them, why don't you send your children to Grace School? You send your children to schools further out, and the reason they tell me in multiple instances is because their children cannot go to the same school as their cousins, because all they do at family gatherings is to compare. It all points down to power plays trying to gain influence over someone else using human methods to achieve what belongs to God. And there are many more examples of this in the workplace and even in the church. I was surprised a few years ago when was told this true story of a person who's no longer at our church had asked another church member, how do I get into Pastor Stephen's life group? The person said, wow, you really want to be discipled by Pastor Steve? And the person said, well, not really. I think there will be a higher likelihood I can become a deacon of the church if I am in his discipleship group. Imagine that. Power plays, even in the church, how to angle yourself so that you can make it to leadership. Let's unpack this issue of power and rivalry this morning as we begin this series and we draw out some biblical principles. Genesis chapter 25, we begin our study in verse 20. Look with me. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. By way of background, Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah, And unfortunately, they could not have children. So Isaac begged the Lord, and the Lord opened up the womb of Rebekah as part of his covenanted promise to Abraham to make him and his descendants a great nation. You can't have a great nation if you can't have progeny. And so Rebekah conceived. Look at verse 22. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The modern sonogram has not yet been invented. And Rebecca wants to know what's happening. Why the child in her womb kept moving, was restless, or as the Bible describes it, fighting. And so she asks of the Lord, and she receives a prophetic answer. Look with me at verse 23. And the Lord said to her, 
Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God reveals to Rebecca that she would be having twins, and that the two children would become two great nations, which was part of the blessings that came with the promise to Abraham. It was revealed that one nation would be stronger than the other, and that the older would serve the younger. This was part of God's sovereign plan revealed to Rebecca. Now, let me stop here. Have you ever read this narrative and, and said to yourself, why in the world would God tell Rebecca this? Because if you have this type of information, it is the seed of rivalry. Imagine if I randomly came up to your family, and this is a hypothetical, and I told your family, oh, by the way, God revealed it to me that the youngest will be more successful and more powerful than the older one. How do you think that will make the older one feel? Would that change the way you parent? Would that change the dynamics in your family? Certainly it would. So we ask the question, why would God reveal what could be a source of rivalry? We have to understand the culture of that time. In the culture of that day, the advantage to succeed in life was given to the eldest son. The eldest son would receive double blessings, a double allocation of the family inheritance, and other rights simply by virtue of being the firstborn. In our modern context, we ask, is that fair? And we say, absolutely not. But that was the culture of that day. And you know our Chinese culture, until a generation ago, many families still practice this. Meaning, if there was one person in the family who everyone thought would be most likely to succeed, it would be the oldest. It didn't mean that there was a guarantee success. It just meant that the advantage was given to him. More powerful, stronger, more successful, the chance of success much higher, having this leg up on life. And yet, interestingly enough, if we look to the scriptures, God often does not use the firstborn. He uses the secondborn or other children to accomplish his tasks. Look at the life of Isaac and Jacob, of Perez, of Solomon, of Joseph, of Ephraim, and the list goes on. You see, God is not bound by civil or cultural norms. He can see to it that those who are not promised the privilege or given the natural advantage can still come out on top. And I believe this is the main purpose of why God reveals this prophecy to Rebekah. He wants to show this family that God's ways are not our ways. And if you're taking notes, that's the first principle I want you to take away with as we talk about power principles. Number one, God's ways are not our ways. Let him decide. In the fight for power, we have to remember that power is God's to give. And therefore, his ways are not our ways. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 24 with me. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. The Bible tells us when she was going to give birth, indeed, there were twins, meaning God confirmed what he had prophesied. You never really know until the children come out. And it was an illustration 
to remind Rebecca that indeed the rest of the prophecy would come true because the first part had come true. Verse 25, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy, he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. The first to come out in the womb was one who was reddish in color, hairy, like a garment, and they named him Esau, literally meaning hairy. Can you imagine the crazy naming system they had back then in those days? Your child comes out hairy, we'll call you Harry. Not very creative, but that's the way it was. Anyway, the firstborn was named Esau, and we come to verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. The second of the twin pair that came out was coming out as if he was grabbing the heel of the elder brother Esau, so they called him Jacob, meaning heel grabber, supplanter, the usurper, one who was trying to get what was not his. Can you imagine the stigma of being called Jacob, the one who grabs for heels? And you're going to see that God doesn't like this name very much in a few weeks, and he will change it to another name. But there you have it, Esau the eldest, Jacob the youngest of this twin pair. Now before we move on, and just a side note for those of you who are more knowledgeable in the scriptures, in the book of Malachi chapter 1 verse 3, in the book of Romans chapter 9 verse 13, this twin pair is again mentioned. You hear a declaration from God in these verses that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Let me clarify this statement for you. It is not God showing favoritism. It is not how we would use love and hate as we, we would use it in the context today of our own relationships. In this context, what God was trying to say was that his covenanted promise with Abraham would flow through Jacob, not Esau. The Messiah would come through the line of Jacob, not Esau. And so, to show that God wasn't wishy-washy, God didn't say, well, let me see how they turned out to see which son I'll choose. God, in his sovereignty, already chose that Jacob would receive the covenanted promise of God that he promised to Abraham. And so he uses two terms that are of such contrast to show that God's decision was only by his grace, not based on anything else. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Because God also loved Esau very much. In fact, Esau would birth a great people, a powerful nation, the Edomites, and he too blessed Esau. So I just wanted to bring clarity to that. But it goes to show you that God's ways are not our ways in this fight over power. Look at verse 27 with me. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. As they grew up, their personalities, their talents, and their interests began to develop. Esau was the outdoorsman, the skillful hunter, one who didn't mind living a rugged life. Jacob, on the other hand, was a mild man. Now, I've, had, I've read some liberal interpretation of this term mild man. No, he was not gay, all right? The Bible says he was a mild man, meaning he enjoyed the comforts of a home life in a tent. In our context, he enjoyed the air-conditioned room more than the sunny outdoors. 
And so he preferred to stay at home. He preferred the comforts of home. You could not find two more different people. Fraternal twins who didn't look like one another and didn't enjoy doing the same things. To put it, for the Gen Y and Gen X with us this morning, in your context, this is Thor and Loki in terms of temperament and abilities. Now the question is, which is the better boy to emulate? Which is the better man to emulate? I love how the Bible doesn't give us commentary. It doesn't tell us that Esau was better than Jacob because he was a manly man or that Jacob was better than Esau because he learned life skills. The preference, interests, skills, and abilities of each person are given by God and no one is better than the other. People are simply born with different personalities and preferences and it is neither good nor bad. So there's nothing wrong if a young boy doesn't like sports but prefers to cook. There's nothing wrong with a young girl who doesn't like dolls but prefers to play with toy cars or enjoy the outdoors. I love the fact that my three children are all very different. They have very different personalities. They have different interests. But here we have Isaac and Rebecca, first-time parents. And I'm sure they're trying, to, trying, trying their best to be great parents. But they do something that's very wrong. Something that all parents should avoid. And because of this mistake, it will divide the descendants of these two sons for hundreds of centuries to come. What was this mistake? Verse 28 tells us, they showed favoritism. Verse 28. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And while I want to believe that all parents love their children equally, it is but natural, I know, that parents naturally gravitate to the one child or children who perhaps share his or her same interest and personality traits. It is normal, right? I love food. I love trying new food. If I want to go out and try a new place, I take the child who shares the same interest at me, with me, and so I invite Nathan to come and enjoy this hobby with me. If I want to discuss world history and politics, I want to enjoy it discussing with a child who shares this interest of mine. And so I invite Andrew for a conversation. If you have a child who enjoys baking cookies, as I do, I call my wife and ask her to bake with my daughter. <laughs> and then when the cookie is ready, that's when I show up. Now, so it is with my parents. I gravitate more to my mother, and my sister gravitates more to my father because of our personalities, the way we think, and even our interests and styles of doing things more closely align my mind with my mother, Christine, with my father's. And growing up, it's interesting, when we planned vacations, my dad and sister would have been very content going to the local library and spending all day there reading. But mom and myself, we wanted to go to Disney World so that's what makes families so exciting and interesting. Everyone is different. But it becomes a problem, and it is emphasized in verse 28, that Isaac and Rebekah, they don't just have an affinity for one over the other. They really had favorites. 
they really loved one child more than the other. Isaac loved Esau more because of the food that Esau hunted and, and cooked for him, his favorite. And he began to favor Esau. Jacob, on the other hand, as implied in verse 27, was more of a homebody and perhaps a mama's boy and loved staying home with Rebecca in the tents. And of course, when you spend time with someone, you begin to develop a closer relationship. So in these verses, you have the seeds of rivalry from which we extrapolate our second principle, number two. If you're taking notes, number two. As it relates to power, overt favoritism fans the flames of rivalry. Avoid it. Overt favoritism fans the flames of rivalry. Avoid it. Whether in the home or in the school or in the place of work, we often talk about favorites. We shouldn't. It is a dangerous game to play. Favorites fan the flame of rivalry. It is often the cause of much tension in the family and in our places of work. Right? You who are working professionals, you know there's often a power struggle to be the favorite of the manager, to be the favorite of the boss, to be the favorite of the CEO with the hopes that you'll be receiving special favor. Or perhaps in the home, there's rivalry amongst the siblings to be the favorite of the parent, if not both, at least either the father or the mother. And that's why if you are an only child, it can be boring. You can be lonely. But there's a great benefit because you are, by default, the favorite. Not of one, but of two. If you are in a family with two children, well, if you can't win them both, at least each one of you can divide one parent. If you have more than two children with three or four, all bets are off. It's an open season how you want to play the favorite game. That's why the Bible stresses that in the eyes of God, there are no favorites. Throughout the scriptures, it is reminded to us over and over again that God loves us all equally, whatever ethnicity, whatever social economic level, and He provides the way of salvation, everyone with the same access, the same way. If we're parents this morning, or bosses or managers, we need to show forth Christ's likeness by making every effort not to show favoritism be as equitable as possible. And that's why policies in the workplace and even in the church are a great thing when used properly because they ensure that everyone is treated fairly and equally. Now, it's tougher at home. I don't ever go to your home and ask, what's your policy as it relates to home life? No one has written policies on there. But may I encourage you as parents to make sure that the rules you apply should be fair to all children. Now, I know sometimes it is the best intention for us as parents to adapt our parenting style to the unique personalities and gender of each of our children. But fair warning, our children do not see it that way. Children, even into the, their teenage age, and sometimes even older, do not understand fully the nuances of parenting. They often see things in very black and white terms. And they often see that even though a parent's main intent 
is to adapt their parenting style to the unique personalities of each child. The child believes that the parents are playing favorites. How many times as experienced parents have your children yelled at you, you're not being fair. It's thrown at us. And then when you try to explain the special circumstances of why you decided as such, they don't get it because they view the love of a parent as having to be black and white. If you are not aware to try to avoid overt or even unintentional favoritism, then the child will feel that they are not being fairly treated and grow up thinking that they were never the favorites in the family. And then that builds in their heart the seed of bitterness, the seed of envy, the seed of rivalry. I often, sadly, have to mediate families that fight. And sometimes the best intentions of parents unintentionally draw forth division. Like a parent who is uh, further up in age and wants to leave instructions for how his or her wealth is to be divided in the family. Often, as is very part of our culture, we look for the most responsible child, the Tao Tai, to, to leave instructions that in the event of one's passing, that the inheritance is shared equally. And so sometimes parents gather the eldest or the most responsible, the one who is the best with money, to be the guardian and leaves instruction unbeknownst to the other children. And when the parents pass, you think it would be a really smooth transition. But you know what happens? All the siblings begin to fight because they weren't there when dad and mom left their instructions. That's why I say sometimes we have to use our common sense. If you're going to distribute wealth equally in the family, make sure that all of your children are present. Make sure they're all there. You can include in-laws or not. It's up to you. But make sure everyone hears the same thing. And make sure that they all receive the same thing. I can't tell you how many fights continue on today because it's so sad there was a one peso difference in the distribution of the inheritance. Sounds silly. But sometimes even the smallest things can cause the seeds of division that will go down even to the next generation if you are a boss with employees, make sure you treat everyone equally. Make sure you make a concerted effort to show that you are fair or else you are fanning the flames of rivalry even in your own company and people will begin to vie for power. And that's where the politics of the office begins to flourish. If you are a teacher, be it a Sunday school teacher or a youth counselor or a school teacher, Make sure you don't show overt favoritism, which will fan the flames of rivalry. Your students can feel it. When I taught Sunday school in America, when we had teacher training, we were told over and over, if you're going to hug one child, you better make sure you hug all the children. If you don't want to hug all the children, then don't hug any. I know that seems so idealistic, but it's so true. 
Many children have been scarred because they see how their teachers respond. I know. Here's that cute kid, chubby, full of life, walks into the Sunday school classroom. All the attention of all the teachers go to him or her. So happy that here that he has come to church today. Unbeknownst that there is another child lurking in the back, watching all of this, and when he steps into the classroom, does not receive the same welcome from the teachers. Then you wonder why they act out. It happens at every level. And it's because oftentimes it's unintentional, but we don't think through it. Companies, even family ones, need to set fair policies, decisions that have been made need to be made with checks and balances and signed. Retirement policies should be fair for all involved. Yes, you can call it an idealistic expectation, but it is a biblical principle that the Bible teaches to shape us in how we are to decide to avoid these issues. If you're a parent, make sure you spend equal time with the child who you don't naturally gravitate towards to make sure they feel loved as well. Soon we're going to see in the course of the life of Jacob that this overt favoritism will fan the flames of rivalry and will split this family and tear apart friendships for decades. Verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with the same red stew, for I'm weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. So now we have, a few years later, perhaps, Esau coming back, hunting in the fields. He was tired. He was hungry, and most likely Jacob knows this. He has cooked Esau's, perhaps, favorite stew, enticing him. And Esau smells it and comes, and asks Jacob for some stew, verse 31. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. We should be surprised by this ask. Imagine a brother comes and says, can I have some of your stew? And the natural response is, sell me your birthright. That doesn't happen in the real world. Can you imagine two boys playing? Can I have a candy? Okay, give me your birthright. It doesn't happen. <laughs> you have to understand that Jacob must have been thinking about this moment. He must have known Esau's personality traits so well, his impulses, that he would be willing to give it. He had been planning this. You don't ask something like this out of the blue. Now, most likely, Rebecca, his mother, would have told Jacob about this prophecy that she received from the Lord. He was her favorite. And Jacob, knowing that the younger will be over the older, the older serving the younger, thought, you know what? I can take it. I can make it happen. I can help God and make it happen. Now, we often fault Jacob for this scheming process as we're going to see, the author of Genesis seems to put the blame on Esau. But Jacob is not without fault. You know, at this point, Jacob could have trusted God enough 
without having to resort to human techniques to allow God's prophecy to come true. He didn't have to get ahead of God. Verse 32. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Esau, perhaps a bit overdramatic. We all are when we're hungry. I'm going to die. No, you're not going to die. You're just really hungry. All right? He, he, he was so impulsive. He wanted that stew now. He didn't see the benefits of his birthright until much later in life. You see, Esau preferred the immediate over the long term. In other words, you can extrapolate the biblical principle. He preferred the temporal over the spiritual. And so Jacob says to him in verse 33, Swear to me on this day. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So here's the deal. The birthright of Esau was exchanged for the stew of Jacob. You know, I've always read this verse, and I've always wondered, can this really happen? Right? Can you really sell your birthright for stew? Can I go to my sister and say, hey, Christine, I'll give you some stew. Give me your birthright. Or two kids of yours come to you and say, dad and mom, we have an announcement. We made a deal this afternoon. He gave me his Legos. I'm now going to be the eldest child. It doesn't happen. Well, it did happen back in the ancient Near East. What was being exchanged was the inheritance rights of the brothers. They were adults. They made a deal that the inheritance would be such that you would receive the double portion. And we find this in uh, the story of the prodigal son, if you remember. The demand of inheritance could be made without the parents having passed Isaac later will be a part of the story. We'll study this in two weeks. But here they made a transaction. Now some may look at this and say, well, there it is. God's method to get the younger to be the older and receive the blessings. But I warn you about this type of thinking. Be careful with your theology. Remember that God is not bound by cultural norms. His ways are not necessarily our ways. God doesn't use deception. God doesn't use scheming plans for His purpose to accomplish His will because He is a holy God. His actions do not contradict His character. He is sovereign over all that He wants to accomplish in spite of our human sinful ways. God didn't need this exchange for His prophecy to occur. I want you to understand that. The Bible never teaches that the ends justify the means. Read the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 8 following. It tells us it never does. The will of God is always to do what is right and to stand up for what is truthful before His eyes, as is so clearly laid out in the Scriptures. His will and His plan will unfold without human intervention and manipulation. So we can say that at this point, Jacob moves ahead of God, and we will see that because he does so, he will suffer consequences. Verse 34, and Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Note this, thus Esau despised his birthright. 
After the transaction, Esau ate the stew and bread, got filled, and then went away. And then here's a statement of commentary. Esau despised his birthright. It means he didn't despise it after the fact. It was a statement that he never put much value in it. Ibo kwantang in Hokkien. He never sought much value. He didn't care for it. He didn't give it a second thought for getting a meal out of it. Especially when he needed to have his instant gratification filled. You see, the third principle, number three, when it comes to power, value the spiritual over the temporal. Learn to wait. Value the spiritual over the temporal. Learn to wait. In our struggle for power in the home, or power in the workplace, or power in school, or power in the church, Take the long view, the spiritual view, not the short and temporal view. It will help you minimize messiness in life and perhaps take away some of the dysfunctions of family. Some people want it, want power now. They want it today, and nothing will stop them. They're willing to destroy friendships and will destroy families to get now what they want at all cost. But the lesson of Scripture reminds us that the long game, the spiritual angle, the heavenly mindset is the one we are to cultivate and to have. To forgive the family members who have wronged you. To be kind to the friends who have betrayed you. To, unbear, to, to endure the unbearable work situation you have been placed in. To put up with teachers who don't pay attention to you, all for the sake of playing the spiritual and accepting the spiritual long game. My friends, we will always lose out on something when we play the spiritual short game, when we accept the temporal, but we will always come out ahead when we aim for the spiritual versus the temporal. If only Esau had learned to wait, if he only valued the spiritual over the temporal, he would have come to appreciate why God let him be the firstborn. But because he could not wait, he despised what God had given him. We're going to find out that he becomes very self-destructive. He gets very angry, if you know the story, at his brother. He will become very angry at his parents. And to spite his parents, he will marry the woman they don't want him to marry. We find that in Genesis chapter 28. We'll get there. Imagine hating your parents so much that you wish to spite them and to make them angry by marrying the woman that they don't want you to marry. Which then leads to his miserable life. If only Jacob could have learned to wait, if he learned to value the spiritual over the temporal, he would have avoided decades of division, a good chunk of his life being cast out from the family home. He could have avoided that if he had only learned to wait and let God do the work.
Every family unit, every community grouping will have dysfunctions, will have very messy situations caused by power place. To lessen and to minimize these things, the Bible gives us wonderful principles. Remember them and live it out. God's ways are not our ways. Let him decide. Overt favoritism fans the flames of rivalry. Avoid it. Value the spiritual over the temporal. Learn to wait. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for this story which we know so well for some of us, and yet it is like a mirror into our family life, into our work life, into our community life. Many of us have forgotten that the spiritual is what is more important than the temporal, and we want to move out ahead of God. We want to use our human scheming ways to manipulate so that we think we can help God along. Help us to be reminded that your ways are not our ways. Help us to humble ourselves to let you work out things in accordance with your will. But always seeking truth. Always doing what is right. Always standing for what is truth. And give us the wisdom, Lord, as parents as teachers, as bosses and managers, as friends, to avoid favoritism. We are reminded that Jesus died for all. Salvation equals the playing field. And because Jesus showed no favoritism, if we are to be like Jesus, if we are to be Christ-like in our discipleship growth, Help us to rid our lives of favoritism as we relate to others. Challenge this church with your word. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.